Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What could be Hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and it's episode 54 of Cage Range, a Nicholas Cage podcast. Hope you've been well, hope you've had a decent week. As ever, the sun is out, we're in the the really 20s in terms of temperature now. Um, We come off the back of a bank holiday weekend, here in the UK at least, hence why this episode is a little late. I do really apologise that the episode is up later than scheduled. Um, I'll be honest, the joy of being a human being and going outside of the house to do things again, um, soak up some of that sun, or as much sun as you can soak up as a ginger man, um, and having some good times and drinks in the sunshine was a little too hard to pass up. So merriment has been had, uh, and now we have the episode again a little later than advertised. My apologies once again, but it's a really good episode. It's been worth the wait, no doubt. I am joined by Billy from the Convo X Nilo podcast. You may recognize the name. It's one I brought up one of the intros uh, much earlier in the series. Billy very kindly had me guest on his podcast a long time back. I think it was back in uh, October. I think it might have been when we uh, chatted at length about Cage there. It was about my time to return the favour and he's joined me to talk all about Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans this week and all the links in the description of course. Speaking of links, you can find the show on Twitter at Cage underscore podcast, on Instagram at Cage Rage Pod, nearing 100 followers on Instagram to get over up on that there business. And you can listen to the show at all the usual streaming services as well. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, Tuned In, iHeartRadio, and Podchaser as well. And you know the drill. If there's anywhere that you're following on, listening on, that you can leave a rating, please do. Helps the show grow and overcome the algorithm. But with that said, let's get into the nitty and indeed the gritty episode 54. Enjoy. So we're wrapping up 2009 this week with the crime drama Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. Here, Nick Cage starts as Terence McDonough, a drug and gambling addicted New Orleans police officer wrapped up in a murder investigation as his life also falls apart around him. Now joining me on the journey to True Cage Nirvana this week to see if Bad Lieutenant answers that port of call or if its soul is no longer dancing, is the host of the wonderful Convo X Nilo podcast, Billy Shear. Billy, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Daryl. Very, very welcome. Um, obviously, if you don't know, um, Billy very kindly had me on his podcast. What, what in this lockdown we were sort of discussing after record feels like a lifetime ago, where we uh, chatted ad nauseum about Cage and all sorts of things. I can't remember when. exactly even when it is, but I remember it took place. It was definitely a thing that happened. Um, <laughs> like I said, even even across our across the pond, across our sort of time divides, it's uh, in the same way. Time no longer has any purpose anymore. None. 
Um, I feel like it was a few months ago, but at the same time, it may also have been five years ago, which is interesting <laughs> because I've only been podcasting for about nine months or 10 months at this point. Well, there you go. Like I've only been using Zoom for nine or 10 months at this point. I know it's mad. It's, but, um, you know, this is what they say about Cage. You know, just when you think you're out, he pulls you back in. We talked about Cage on your podcast, but now we're talking very specifically about one Cage film this time around. Um, maybe the longest Cage titled film, Bad Lieutenant, Port of yeah. Call, New Orleans, which sounds good when you say it like that. It sure does. Uh, um, and also a joy to watch as well. And obviously, we'll get into, um, all the goodness of this film as we go along. But uh, I guess for the listeners, um, I've, I'm always interested to know with guests at the start, you know, what's your connection to Cage? Where do you stand on him? He's that actor. Um, whether you've seen all his films or one, or you sort of know of him, everyone's got an opinion on Cage. What is yours? I haven't seen all of his films, but not a day goes by when I don't think about him. That, that much is... <laughs> that much is is true. Uh, you know, I, I I will see almost anything he's in. I don't know. I think about this a lot. What is it about him that just, what is the essence of cage that draws me to him so much? I mean, I'm looking at that picture behind you now. And there's, <laughs> I mean, they're all kidding aside, like there, there's a charisma, there's a physical charisma. There's the fact that the guy is a chameleon, you know, he can be incredibly handsome in every conventional definition of the word and, and absolutely repugnant. Right. And yeah. back and forth uh, throughout decades of existence of this guy's life. I, I don't know how he does it. I think few, some human beings can do that. Um, and the lucky ones have acting skills as well. So he's just got something. It's, it's this incredible X factor about him. Uh, this it factor like that. And, you know, um, Obviously, he can act now. Has he? I think, as we've we've discussed before, has he had stinkers? Yes, he's he's had a few bad ones in there. What actor hasn't? Um, but there's been interestingly, um, I, I guess, a comparison that's popped up recently on social media, or recently at the time of recording, especially with one tweet that went out saying, you know, uh, Nicholas Cage versus Bruce Willis, like whose career's gone downhill more? And um, <laughs> that tweet got. Um, well, I think the nicest way, the defense of Cage was so adamantly there because I think the consensus is, yes, you can look on his Wikipedia page and see his 2010 filmography and, um, you know, the reasons for a lot of them are sort of there. But compared to Bruce Willis, who seems to really get a free pass for the Die Hard trilogy, yeah. um, he's been, Bruce Willis has been phoning it in for years now years and years and obviously didn't do any, himself any favors when there was those teasers coming out last year thinking always oh, uh is bruce willis back is die hard back and it was just an advert for car batteries i think it was and i was like it what, was. what the hell is this all about it's very difficult i think to ascertain whether or not a career has gone downhill right i mean i think um I wonder if they define it that way. I wonder if they see it that way, Cage and Willis specifically, or if they just see it. Uh, I, I think that actors at that stage um, have a much more introspective view of their lives and careers than we're capable of. And, and I think that's evident in the work that they do. I, I don't know them personally. I can't pretend to have any key into what their finances are like. 
Um, I know that the, that at least Cage has had difficulties in the past with taxes and whatnot, mm-hmm. but I, I see the two of them taking a lot of roles. Um, I think for the sheer joy of doing so, I mean, Kevin Smith has, uh, you know, notoriously said a lot of negative things about working with Bruce Willis on that movie cop out. But I also think if you, um, kind of read between the lines a little bit, I think that Smith was just kind of a baby about the whole thing, frankly, like, I mean, you can't expect these people to always just do great work. Um, I think sometimes they just want to have fun. Yeah, definitely. I mean, interestingly, on the on the flip side of that, Kevin Smith has frequently said that Nicolas Cage would be on his Mount Rushmore of actors as well. Um, he he makes no secret about being a huge fan of him. Um, obviously, he'd penned that Superman script that Nicolas Cage was supposed to Superman up way back when. Uh, and Tim Burton was that's meant right, to direct. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, I know that um, so, uh, the writer of Community and Rick and Morty, Dan Harmon, has frequently said that um, you know, if you don't think that Nicolas Cage is the greatest actor, then you're just wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> is it, which, uh, you know, obviously I'm biased. I agree with it as well. But um, I think it's the interesting parallel is that um i think willis has phoned in a lot of performances now cage has one or two phone-ins sure with the films that i've seen um but still what would you say they are could you name them um, will you name them <laughs> can i yes will i you know it um ju- you know just just so this for balance for balance right. the, the most obvious one uh which is one that as of this recording is still on uh, Netflix in the UK, at least. I don't know about in the US, but it's called Left Behind. One uh, percent rated on Rotten Tomatoes. Arguably one of the worst films ever made. Um, I, I bring it up a few a few times on the podcast as a point of reference, but it's um, an adaptation of a Christian book series that focuses on the Rapture. Turns out that's a very popular Christian <laughs> subgenre of film. Uh, where he plays a pilot, uh, where basically like the Thanos snap happens and people just disappear. They're trying to figure out what's going on, but it's just a poorly acted film, a poorly directed film, a poorly written film. It's it is so bad that it's it's still bad to watch. But some things you're just laughing out loud. Uh, he plays a pilot in this, uh, Rayford Steele. Um, who is um, in an airplane when this happens and his daughter's on the ground. They're trying to figure it all out. Um, and I think the irony of this is that I have I fear that maybe I've made this film sound infinitely better than what it is. Um, <laughs> but it's it's just so bad. Even some Christian magazines were saying that it makes all Christians look out to be like, they're insane. Um the, the the director, I think, was the only person who liked it. He said um, it was the greatest film based on the rapture he'd ever seen. I don't know how many rapture films that there are. Um, it's an interesting genre. It's uh... an interesting <laughs> genre. I would say, for your own sanity, don't, don't, just don't take the time um, to watch it unless you're you're going through the riffraff like I am. Um, <laughs> space, but you're off. a completist, yeah. Unless you're, you know, uh, you've got to complete that collection. You've got to get all of those like Pokemon cage cards in that right. binder. 
I'm certainly oh, aware of it. I read about it when it came out. Uh, I thought it was kind of curious that uh, Nicolas Cage, if I'm not mistaken, didn't want to talk about it very much, right? Because I think people thought that it was maybe uh, revealing of his own religious proclivities. And he was like, I don't want to talk about that stuff. Yeah, he's definitely someone that wants to keep, I think of a lot of his personal life, uh, personal life keep those cards close to his chest um i know from looking into it the only reason he took it was because his brother who's a priest is a big fan of the novels so he encouraged him to do it basically uh-huh. as a favor so you can't say that nicholas cage isn't willing to do one for the family take one for the team um you know he's thinking beyond himself that's the altruism of cage um for sure. he will start in a stinker for the um, to make one family member happy um, so if that doesn't speak to his character, then I, I don't know what does. <laughs> Nor I. So it's, this uh, bad lieutenant business, what do you think of this? Uh, well, remarkably better than Left Behind. Um, <laughs> by uh, by 84% better by uh, Rotten Tomatoes standards. 85% right. in total um, for, the, for the maths lovers out there, 84 plus one. Um, this was one that, like, I think I was saying to you off off record i'd seen this film so long ago i think it must have been close to when it came out i didn't see it at the mm-hmm. cinema but i think I'd, I'd seen it afterwards but it's been long enough now that i've largely forgotten what happens it's basically like watching it again um yeah. i think it's one that i expected to be crazier in a way uh, because there is a lot of scope here for an unhinged cage performance and in we do get it and it's definitely one of those films where when we get that full cage, it's warranted, it's earned, it's not necessarily cage for the sake of cage. Um, so I definitely enjoyed it. Um, I, I, I like, I, I appreciate it definitely when um, a cage film can play cage with strengths, but not just because he's in the film. Um, I don't know about you. For sure. I saw it in, I guess, 2009 when it came out. I did see it in the cinema on a date. Um, It uh, it was great. I I mean, I really enjoyed it from the beginning, but I think it wasn't what I expected because I I was a big fan of the Bad Lieutenant Abel Ferreira film with Harvey Keitel. And at the time, I don't think I knew much about uh, Herzog's work. I just knew the name. So there's two reasons to go see the movie. Well, maybe three. Cage the previous film in Herzog. And I was a bit surprised that it had no connection whatsoever with the first one, other than that these were both lieutenants in a police force. That's it. (laughs) So I think I was a little surprised because I didn't really understand what the connection was. And then um, rewatching it, I must've saw it, uh, you know, maybe three or four years ago. I loved it even more. And then rewatching it this weekend. God, I love it. I love the movie. I got to say. It's um, it's definitely one that um, I think this is kind of uh, almost a, a guilty by association thing with Cage. With he has um, in his repertoire, his massive repertoire of films, his back catalogue, so many good films that go under the radar. Um, because I think, like we're alluding to, he does get written off um, by some people who are like, "Oh, Con Air was good, but he's that crazy guy. He's Patriot, isn't he?" Um, so I think films like this, which, um, this bad Lieutenant, the 2009 one got like a quite a limited release. So didn't really make a dent when it released. Um, 
dropped on November 20th, 2009. It was against the likes of Twilight Saga, New Moon and The Blind Side. So, um, yeah, how can you compete? Uh, didn't really, didn't really have a chance, but this is another one of those films that, um, I would recommend to people that maybe don't watch a lot of Cage to go and seek out because it's, you know, the performance makes sense. It's a good film. It's well made. Um, it's like, there's not really, I guess, I, I guess a message to this film, you know, obviously sometimes you can be like, oh, okay, this is what I'm supposed to take away from it. It is just a man with a bad back who takes drugs and things get right. a bit more insane for him. But hey, it doesn't take away from it. It's still a lot of fun, um, I say. Well, you know, it's funny. So uh, I read the book uh, Guide for the Perplexed, which was a series of interviews uh, with Werner Herzog. So I reread the sections concerning this film. And it was interesting because he uses a lot of words like uh, he's evil, right? Um, this character is just evil and must have, I'm not directly quoting, but something like, you know, Cage wanted to have, I, I, I encouraged him to have fun with the blissly evil element of this character. Right. And it's weird that he says that because in watching it, I don't feel like McDonald was evil. It's not the word that I would use. What about you? No, I would agree with that um, in the fact that he's not evil. I was watching an interview that he did, and I think someone, uh, the interview outright asked him, what's your take on the character? Where do you think that he stands on the um, on the good-bad divide? But Cage, think, you know, the smart acting answer is like, well, I, you know, um, the biggest thing for me is that you make your own answers and you put your own pieces together. I don't think he likes giving stuff away and telling you how you should feel about film. <laughs> which is admirable. Um, it is, it is. But he, an answer that he gave would, I guess, um, be the answer I would agree with. He's kind of like, you know, um, I think perhaps anyone in that situation who's got that back injury, um, this could change anyone. Um, you know, who's to say that you or I wouldn't change if, um, not to say necessarily we'd be diving into a dirty pool in a New Orleans prison, um, but if we were to go through that injury would we be the same people on the other side um and i know for myself someone who's not to the extent of mcdonough in the film and had to go and <laughs> take vicodin and source cocaine and stuff uh, but i've had lower back issues um in in my in years gone past for myself and i've had excruciating nights where i couldn't get to sleep i've tried to um just sleep on the floor just to try and make it and it's you know something that potentially debilitating it does change your outlook again i'll stress you know i've never gone on a drug addled binge as a result of it and just started seeing lizards that may or may not be there um but it's um i think i yeah i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't say that he was evil i don't think he's an evil man i think he's just a man in a, who's been put into a situation through the result of his life for sure. I think that um, there's some evidence in the beginning to show that he's not a very nice guy, right? As they're in the the um, flooded jail, going through the locker of a fellow officer, him and Val Kilmer played uh, Stevie, right? Yes. They're uh, digging through this guy's possessions, finding naked pictures of his wife. It's kind of uh, you know unknown what they're planning on doing with this. Some sort of extortion is suggested. Um, so, and, and his initial impulse is not to jump in the water and rescue this guy. It's to place bets on whether or not 
you know, how long it's going to take for him to drown. Right. Yeah. So I mean, really in this situation, like, I love this because it's called bad Lieutenant and Val Kilmer was the worst of all the cops. <laughs> he was really <laughs> the most selfish of yeah. all of them and barely in it. But, but just to, to continue on for a moment, we can revisit that. But his first impulse was not to help the guy and eventually comes around to it for, for, Reasons we don't know. We can only speculate that he's not an evil guy, that there's some semblance of good in him that we see trickle out in little bits in the movie as it goes along. So it's almost as if there's a good character that's fighting against this enormous tide of personal despair, community despair. Uh, you know, the drug addiction is it, it's just uh, it's watering down his real human emotions, which before that were pretty complicated. Right. As we saw, again, big extremes of of wickedness in the extortion of a fellow officer, but also this huge pendulum swing to something really noble of saving a man's life when he doesn't have to. A, a, a quote unquote lesser human in, in the sense of a prisoner. Yeah, it's um, I think there's, there's definitely a uh, a moral struggle with McDonough throughout the film. I mean, he he. I think he knows he's a good cop, and he there's some level he still wants to uh, proceed on that on that occupation. He still wants to do the job, but he's in so much pain. Obviously, as the film goes through, that um, all of his decisions are pretty much dictated by how can he get drugs to get through to the next day. Um, he's definitely someone who's living on a day to day basis, right. um, dealing with all this stuff. Obviously in that six months between the opening of the film where he saved that prisoner and when we open with the uh, the murder of the five um, Senglis, people have been gunned mm -hmm. down in the drug trade. Um, he will do the job, but he's very much, a, I guess, that loose cannon cowboy, as the uh, the captain says to him, you know, we, you know, we, <laughs> we can't do that cowboy shit anymore and get away with it. Um, but but like you say, maybe it's more apt that he should be um, Val Kilmer's Stevie as the worst lieutenant port of call <laughs> New Orleans. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, how does that resonate with you? I'm curious. The the quote unquote cowboy shit as a as a Breton, as it will. How does that resonate? It's it's interesting because um, by and large, even in, in I guess media depictions for i guess like police dramas and stuff here you don't really get that um a lot of the time it is sort of by the book stuff um because we you don't really get the whole um you don't have cowboys. sheriff kind no, <laughs> no cowboys uh, um barely any barely any cows unless you live by fields over here um but it's that's not really part of our history i don't think you know we don't really get the sheriffs you know you you wouldn't see um, a, a detective on the police force here who could wear like a cowboy hat, um, <laughs> or you just I guess don't. You couldn't. Not really. I mean, <laughs> it, it, I guess in America, like it's like anyone can be deputized, which is baffling to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like law and order is is so protected in America, and yet there's such a fast and loose depiction of it that. Um, the way I see it is that if if even Stephen fucking Seagal has been deputized in America, then it means yeah. nothing. It right. means nothing. Right. That, Shaquille uh, O'Neal as well. Oh, even Big Shaq. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It, in a sense, it means almost nothing. I mean, presumably they have to go undergo some sort of police training in order to get deputized. Well, I mean, I don't think they really have to. 
Uh, I just don't know how it works, and I just it just but, makes me think who would be deputised in the UK. I mean, they, <laughs> they would end up doing it to James Corden because Jason he's, Statham. That would be ah, oh, he'd be too powerful. He'd be too. <laughs> there's there's only so much power you can give to certain people. Would I you say like, that he's the UK's answer to Nicolas Cage? Oh, do we have an answer? That's yeah. the question. Um, is Nick is Cage a question that can be answered? Um, <laughs> I don't know who our closest would be. Maybe if Oldman, um, Oldman perhaps. Yeah. That's a good shout. I mean, um, I mean, I'm I'm quite a fan of Robert Pattinson. In a lot to say, is at a Cage level in the terms he of may, roles, but he's taken a lot of eclectic roles. Yeah. Um, I mean, I loved him in the Lighthouse. I don't know if you if you've seen it. I haven't um, seen it yet. Yeah. But him and De, him and Defoe in the Lighthouse was um, a magnificent pairing, and he is. Um, and props to him for putting Twilight so far in that in the rear view mirror as well. But very yeah yeah. Um, I don't know. You know, know what I think? Well, you know what else I was thinking about with Bad Lieutenant? And I had to research it too. There's not one actor in that film who's from New Orleans. Really? <laughs> yeah, like, not one. It's Maybe it's, among the extras, but none of the named actors are even from there, which I, I noticed watching it. There's no accents, which was kind of peculiar because New Orleans is a very distinctive accent. Yeah. I mean, I you would have thought maybe there was some more locality to it, but I guess it's an interesting thing with Cage because he has a few films which end up in New Orleans. Um, he had uh, Zanderley, which was back in 94. It could have been earlier. Uh, 91. Um, he The film he directed, Sonny, with James Franco, that was set in New Orleans as well. Um, so I, I'm sure there's one more that I'm sort of forgetting. But um, he's, he's a big fan of New Orleans. I think he, he right. loves the culture of it. He loves um, the character of it. Um, reading into the film, apparently it was supposed to be directed in New York, uh, mm-hmm. but for mm-hmm. budgetary reasons, they had to move it to New Orleans. And allegedly, Cage had also pushed for it to go to New Orleans in the wake of Hurricane Katrina um, to sort of help out the city as well, I suppose, um, get some mm-hmm. funding for the city by filming there as well, which which comes back to what I say, the altruism of Cage, um, always giving, always giving. It was, you know, that's great. Uh, it was, it was a great choice. It was a great locale. I just thought it was a little peculiar that the more could have been done to add to the flavor of the, uh, the atmosphere of it. His own performance w- was standing. I just think it was, a, it was a little bit weird. Like no one has that distinctive accent. And, and to be honest, and I like that Herzog deliberately tried to stay away from the telltale places of uh, New Orleans, like the French Quarter and stuff. He really tried to show other aspects of New Orleans. But the problem with that is, again, without some of those like regional accents and things like that, I, I didn't know it was New Orleans. I've never been to New Orleans. And and so I rely on movies to take me to those places. I didn't really feel <laughs> like I was there. You know what I mean? Uh, no, I, I, I agree with that. Um, it's I think it definitely tried to show a lot of more, and I say respectfully, um, like lower class areas and sort of harder hit areas. Again, I suppose in the wake of... Um, Hurricane Katrina and sort of uh, dealing with that and the areas, those sort of dilapidated sort of warehouses that exhibit um, very heartfully calls prime real estate that you can throw a body down and then also set up a condo up because he's a businessman and he's got big That's ideas. Right. That's right. Um, New Orleans, though, has been somewhere I would love to visit, though. Um, it seems to have so Absolutely. much culture and uh, history and 
Um, I mean, that, that jailhouse scene, tell me that that wasn't a, a terrific opening. Like nothing oriented you in a post-hurricane uh, New Orleans as a flooded jail. Like that, something about that was just very striking. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, sort of immediately in the thick of it. And then you've got two potentially crooked cops who maybe you sort of think, are they going to use Hurricane Katrina to like a personal advantage here? Yeah. Um, but just sort of watching it, when I sort of clocked that it was um, uh, Val Kilmer at the start, my notes were just like, oh, a former Batman and a what if Superman side by yeah. side. Um, <laughs> That's a way to put it. Now taking bets on a prisoner about to draw. <laughs> Um, so, you know how how the mighty have fallen. Oh God, um, yes, America likes our heroes dirty. That's for sure. That's, that's the uh, you know is anyone is anyone really interested in the story of a cop who does well and gets better? I don't think so. Never. Um, I'm trying to th- again. I'm, I'm trying to think of the closest we would have to sort of um, renegade dirty cop in the UK. Uh, maybe Luther. Um, for what I haven't seen it yet, Idris Elba. Um, I, I like that fellow though; he's a great actor. Idris Elba, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the other closest. Um, I don't know if it's if it's on the, in America or BBC America. Um, we have a show over here called Line of Duty, um, which is a it's basically about um, the I guess the internal team who investigates the crooked cops on the police force. Um, it's part of this. No one likes those people. Show. No, you know, they're do-gooders, but my God, what a show, what a show, <laughs> which is, if nothing else, that's my, you know, take that away if you want some UK crooked cop um, action. Um, but uh, that's obviously like that scene, you, know, you, you don't know where it's going to go. You don't know if they're going to save him. It's sort of setting up the re- rest of the film for like Cage's yeah. character. Um, sort of reading about that one, Herzog said that they used... 2,400 cans of decaf coffee to make Isn't the water great? appear yeah. dirty. Um, yeah. I think how much how much is that budget-wise that goes <laughs> on coffee? Because the budget was only $25 million, uh for this film. Which seems a lot for that movie. It's, you it know what I mean? It seems a lot. And then you yeah. think, you know, that's a that's Mostly a single thousand. camera, you know? Uh, yeah. I think most of that budget had to have gone to the actors, which I'm sure all of them were working pretty like at scale you know i don't think that they made a fortune off of that but i'm sure most of that budget was just actors um some of those special effects yeah i mean the rest of it was seemed like a pretty cheap movie to make yeah definitely a cheap but effective movie um like i say for a lot of the oh the best yeah yeah um going on decaf coffee um (laughs) i suppose at what point you know with the rest of that sort of information they said they 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 went to paint the water or like the um, the surface they'd use for the water, but it was toxic. But the regular coffee, the actor absorbed. So yeah. I think like if that was also potentially two thousand four cans of regular coffee that a man's absorbed through his skin, um, he some would say to this day he's still wired. Um, yeah, well, I wouldn't have even thought of that. I wonder who thought of that. You know that that it's absorbed through the skin. I if I were directing a film, I would have just dumped the coffee in the water. I doubt I would have thought of it. He saved Nicholas Cage's life. <laughs> well, whoever that was, I suppose you've got to assume there was some kind of a, uh, HR entity, like the one person with the common sense. Um, yeah. Because Cage's like, throw me in the coffee. 
And Herzog is like, <laughs> throw him in the coffee. And then Hector's like, you can't, you can't throw you in the coffee. The, you will, you will die. Your heart rate, your heart will absorb <laughs> all yeah. of that brown liquid. Um, that it makes you want to be sort of um, like the fly on the wall for, for like those conversations. Oh, God, though. yes. God, yes. So did you, did you ever see the original? I didn't know a bit, a bit sort of before uh, my time. And I guess it wasn't until this movie and reading into it that I realized that or came to be aware that there, there was a bad yeah. lieutenant before this one. For sure. So it's kind of cool. You saw it then completely without any notion that there was this, uh, this other bad lieutenant out there in the world. No, I mean, the only, um, I think you may have sort of seen the same information, but the only reason I was aware of it was there was the whole, um, Abel Ferrara versus Werner Herzog um, situation. Um, Herzog said he it wasn't a remake. It's not a reboot. It's just a and film. he's never even seen it. <laughs> that he's never even no, seen it. Nor had he seen any of Ferrara's work to this day. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be a really interesting backstory on this to say, though. Abel Ferrara was like, um, well, the things he said about when he found out there was a film being made in 2009, um, he said it was a horrible feeling like when you get robbed. He hoped that all those involved in the remake um, would all die in hell, his exact words. Um, he w- <laughs> wasn't exactly um, happy about it, but it's at the same name, uh, the same sort of character plot point of a... Uh, a corrupt policeman as the central character. Um, so, it, so it makes you think. What I enjoyed as well, and I'm sort of skipping ahead here, is that coincidentally, both films were also released on the 20th of November. Um, the Harvey Keitel, Abel um, Ferrara in uh, 92. This one, November 20th, um, 2009. Both had the same producer, Edward R. Pressman. Yeah. So it kind of so was Ed, did Edward Pressman go to Herzog? I'm like this is kind of quite similar to a film I did twenty years twenty years ago, and Herzog's like, shh, you'll never know. <laughs> no one's talking about 1992 Bad Lieutenant anymore. I wonder because you're right, nobody was talking about it. I guess he just owned the rights, as I understood it. He wanted to franchise it and make a whole series of Bad Lieutenant films, which is so strange because it's not a movie you would think of as a franchise kind of film. No, this, I mean, just given the title, it's Bad Lieutenant, semicolon, Port of Call, New Orleans, <laughs> yeah. that to me opens it up for Bad Lieutenant Los Angeles, Bad Lieutenant exactly. Mississippi yeah. or, or whatever. So I would get it if it was an anthology of Bad Lieutenants. I suppose the story is how many corrupt cops with bad backs can you um, right. can you talk about? Well, I remember, so I remember watching the first one and I saw it completely by accident. I was walking through a Blockbuster video store and I saw the cover and it was Harvey Keitel's face on the box holding a gun. And then the tagline was something to the effect of thief, junkie, gambler, murder, cop. I was like, yeah, I got, I got to check this out. <laughs> Ooh, that's, that's a nice tagline to be fair. Isn't it? I mean, I'm just looking on like the wiki page for that bad lieutenant and one of the theatrical posters, it's just um, a ripped Harvey Keitel uh, naked except for the crotch with bad lieutenant over it. And I was like, he's so bad that he doesn't wear a uniform to work. 
Um, <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so I'd, I think I'd maybe uh, I'd check it out because it it seems like it uh, like a similar but different film. Although that one was set in in New York, maybe that's another reason why um, they wanted to move it to New Orleans. Um, oh yeah, I mean, it had to have been. I, the comparisons would have just been too heavy had they set it in New York. I think that um, that character though had no excuse for his actions. He had no back problems that we know of. He was just a. If there, if either of them were evil, the Harvey Keitel lieutenant was certainly much worse of a person. They had a lot of the same traits. The the gambling obsession. Um, there was less full frontal nudity on Nicolas Cage's part, unfortunately. Always a shame, I say, for, every for week. Us, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but uh, a lot of the same traits. However, I felt like in a weird way, because Herzog likes to push limits. Ferreira pushed those limits much further in the sense of uh, his bad lieutenant, not, met, not many excuses for his actions. Herzog gives us the back pain as sort of a precondition for his his drug use, uh, which also is a precondition for some of his bad behaviors. In other words, you know, nothing excuses it, but there's a, a reason most of us can identify with that Harvey Keitel character is just a dick. I mean, like the way he was with his family, the way he was with his children, he was an asshole. He was a guy you hated from the moment you saw him uh, in that movie. Um, and I don't want to give too much away about where his character goes, but um I think that Cage's lieutenant is a far more redemptive lieutenant. He wasn't that bad, in other words. He was not that bad of a lieutenant. Yeah, I mean, obviously you know, worse. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I don't want to give my final thoughts on the film yet, but it would be more just like if it was called kind of bad lieutenant, um, Porter Call, New Orleans. It kind of makes me think, though, with that description of, obviously, Harvey Keitel being just this polar opposite evil bad lieutenant in the 1992 version like maybe that was some of what they were trying to hint at with val kilmer's character who was <laughs> completely um just this bullish and redemptive beyond scruples uh, yeah. beyond scruples <laughs> he he more than happy to let a criminal die or plant evidence just kill yeah. someone what was his um, rank though i don't think he was lieutenant um no i think he I think he was a sergeant, um, certainly must have been. at the yeah. start. Um, so I've seen Madonna by saving the the drowning criminal at the start. He He's promoted to lieutenant. Uh, by the end of the film, he is um, he's promoted again to sergeant. I think it is if I've got the rankings the right order. Um, so for better or worse, he gets two promotions in this. Val yeah. Kilmer, um, ju- just a bigger body count. Um, right, <laughs> which is all, which is all he wants. But when you when you've starred in the island of Doctor Moreau, like Val Kilmer has, that changes a man, um, doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't it? Did you feel that he was wasted in that movie? Um, wasted in a lot of things, I think. <laughs> with, uh, with old Val Kilmer, like, I've like nothing against him. Um, but I think he's. I'm not sure what he's what he's up to these days because I think for the 2010s he's kind of just dropped off. The radar, although I think he was he's doing come... a one man show as Mark Twain that he wrote, which uh, I've seen clips of. It looks great. It came to Denver oh. not not super long ago before the pandemic. And uh, I didn't get a chance to catch it, but actually he didn't. In fact, he didn't because he was sick and um, they showed video of it. And then I think with fans who went to go see it, there was the opportunity for them to redeem their tickets to see him in person. This is all just from reading the news. 
So I'm not sure if he ever actually, in fact, made it back here to do the performance. But I saw him on an interview with Larry King talking about how like that's what he was working on for like years was writing this Mark Twain thing and performing as him. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, just looking on his Wikipedia page, like he's done a smattering of things, a load of under the radar stuff. It looks like he is uh, is set to reprise the role of Iceman in the Top Gun Maverick film whenever that comes out at this point. Um, and looks like he had a cameo in the Jalen uh, Jane Silent Bob reboot last year as well. Um, he just seems to be doing his own thing at the moment. Um, just taking a role as and when when he sees fit um, how would you comment on the chemistry kilmer chemistry cage kilmer chemistry the cage kilmer chemistry rolls off the tongue doesn't uh, it <laughs> i think that they were interesting in sort of parallels you know you've got obviously kilmer um and i, th- I think it's a shame he wasn't in the film more because he could have he could have provided like more of a um uh, I guess like a villainous role maybe because it was there, it was there for the taking and maybe could have been, you know, something that aided in that redemptive arc of McDonough. Um, but I think he's, he's that example that of how far, how bad a Lieutenant can get um, sort of by the end when uh, he wants to kill big fate exhibits um, characters like the, the, the drug mastermind in the film. And he wants to sort of kill him, but Cage is like, no, we're going to cuff him. We're going to do this the right way. You know, we get those like those redemptive hints. Um, mm-hmm. I, think, I think by contrast, um, it's like no, he, you know, despite all that the bad that he's done, he can still do the job. Um, but there, like I said, no real comeuppance for Kilmer other than just being told, "No, bad dog, stay." <laughs> Basically, right. Right. I, I completely you. agree. I wish I would have seen the two of them on screen together a lot more. I felt like it was a wasted opportunity to have these two titans uh, in the same film and just not used more. I know, a real, a, a real shame that we, um, that we. That I we think Herzog just doesn't understand uh, people's affection for uh, Cage and Kilmer. No, no, I don't. I don't know that he does. Um... It, like I said, it seemed like they wanted to focus on sort of, I guess, the story that comes of the character, and um, you know, sometimes I'm always interested to know with the the directors, the producers, the writers, uh, with films that Cage does get. You know, was Cage always the first choice? Was there people before him? Did he find out about the role and say like, I want that? Um, like I know it's been the cases in bits and pieces, but. Um, when you get these, I guess these Cajun roles that really serve his his style um, quite well, you know, what are these roles that are written for him? The you know this rise and this fall of this uh, of this lieutenant. So, for sure, I remember reading that Herzog said that he had met Cage for the first time when Cage was an adolescent. When Herzog was working on the film Fitzcarraldo, he met Cage at uh, Francis Ford Coppola's uh, house. And um, as Herzog put it, we circled each other's careers over the years, uh, watching each other from a distance, like two caged fighters observing <laughs> the other's behavior, you know, so, <laughs> so to speak. And then um, I think they just explored opportunities to work together that just kept falling through. 
I, I would imagine without, I didn't read this from Herzog, but I can just imagine he appreciated Cage for all the obvious reasons that, that any of us do and mm-hmm. jumped at the chance to work with him and vice versa. So it just seems to me like the script afforded both of them the opportunity to do so. Because if I remember correctly too, this was one of Herzog's first, if not, if not the first, maybe even the only one that he did with, with studio backing, just a straight up studio, Hollywood studio. We got a script for you, Mr. Herzog. We would like you to take a crack at this based on your decades of, of privately funded independent films that you've done. Um, so I think that this was the first time that he maybe had access to some of these uh, Hollywood uh, dealings, right? Casting directors, that kind of stuff, the unions, all that stuff. And I'm sure he's worked with them a little bit, although I can't think of a movie that he's done before this that was a Hollywood film. Yeah, I, mean, I was just thinking it's it's interesting because obviously, I guess in film circles, um, Werner Herzog is such a known and respected name Um I think most recently you you may have noticed he has a a role in the first season of The Mandalorian mm-hmm. um, when they're after Baby Yoda. Um, yeah, yeah. That. yeah. Um, I'm just looking at his Wikipedia page because obviously so, so many documentaries, um, right. right? Feature films that he's directed, shorts as well. Such like an, an immense body of work, but so, a lot of things that you may just may not have heard of. Have Have you? been a fan of his before this film um like admittedly um i put myself in that camp of i knew the name but not the body of work um i'd always uh, i knew what he looked like i knew the name but if you'd asked me to sort of name a film he'd worked on sort of outside of this i'd probably like uh, i don't know i would have mm-hmm. given you a, a hearty honest shrug um because i wouldn't have been able to place him if you if you knew more about his work the the fact that this movie brought these two men together seems almost even more puzzling and yet at the same time it makes perfect sense in a weird way because herzog is known for you know funding all of his own movies um he basically he makes the profits from a film funnels it into another film. So he has pretty much avoided any sort of studio system his whole career and has been able to explore um, subject matter and only subject matter that interests him, right? He doesn't, he typically doesn't work for other people. Um, and so, and, and he's worked with a few big named actors and actresses, but not many. It's just not really his forte. Um, more recent years, he's done a lot more documentaries and narrative films um, with a few pretty big exceptions. But he's also known for taking like bizarre risks, right? So like he made the movie Fitzcarraldo in which he moved a ship over a mountain. I mean, quite literally, he didn't have to. He could have built a model. He could have done many, but he moved a ship across <laughs> a mountain. Um, wow. And that, probably what he's most famous for as a filmmaker. So he takes these huge risks as a filmmaker. And so it made sense that um, these two uh, titans would uh, would would get together at some point and it, it was great that they did and because of their reputations and their work you would think yeah, a, a person would wonder what the hell would they work on we would just speculate what kind of a film would they do i read at one point herzog wanted cage to play cortez in a movie about the uh conquering of the um of the aztecs um it just didn't happen so the fact that it became bad lieutenant port of call new orleans was a very interesting meshing of those two minds and uh from cortez what i could imagine would have been quite a film to bad lieutenant huge huge leap and yet it, it just makes 
perfect sense somehow. I mean, you get a lot of these, um, I suppose, art house flashes with with Herzog in this, and um, I guess as the film goes on and you see it in Madonna's character, um, it's never outright said like this is because you are on drugs. I guess it's that's what Cage was saying. It's for you as the audience to put those bits together. Um, but most obviously, the 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 scene that comes to mind is when um, him and some of the other cops are. Um, uh, on a stakeout, they're watching over a building from like a high rank of building, and he sees the two iguanas on the table. Um, and then he's like, Why, like, what the fuck are these iguanas doing on the table? Um, or the actual question, like, What are these fucking iguanas doing on my coffee table? And then the song plays, and you get these like weird, like fisheye lens almost close ups yeah. on, the, on the lizards, their faces, uh, like their eyes. Uh, and it's a shot you get a few times. There's there's one with a, uh, just before that. There's a car crash as of the result of um, an alligator. Uh, a car hitting the alligator. Yeah. Um, and it just so happens that um, the the lieutenant or the captain on that case is the person who gave McDonough's Bucky's daughter a speeding ticket yeah. um, that he yeah. needs to go and meet. And then you get the other... And then, obviously, saying that there's the alligator on the side of the road um, yeah. who it just looks like this alligator is watching this all unfold. And I just kind of... In my head, I was like, were those two alligators related? Were they like a, like a husband and wife alligator or something? Is that uh, alligator now traumatized yeah. to see their partner die and then i was just if if that was the intent i don't know i'm just thinking all these things but i suppose it's this is this is supposed to be that thing that you don't know what's in his head with some things and what isn't in his head right and i think you know knowing Herzog, because you know before we started recording we we're talking about the coronavirus and um i read an interview with Herzog when uh not too long ago, asked about the coronavirus and its uh, uh, his predictions for its impact on culture, and and I like what he said. He said something to the effect of, you know, um, what, what everybody gets out of this is up to them. Everyone must assign their own meaning to this pandemic, and I love that. I love that. Uh, it's it, it's it's obvious. It's so self evident, right? Like it's up to everyone else to assign their own meaning to this, and I I think that that's what he would say about all of his work, and I think that's what he would say about those scenes. And I, there was one uh, interview I read when he was asked about the iguanas, and he basically said something so dismissive as, "Who would not want to see Nicolas Cage and an iguana in a room together? It doesn't get better than that." <laughs> it's like, no, it doesn't get better than that. Like what else is there? There's I mean, nothing else to it. I mean, if that if that's the answer, I mean, then I'm not going to question that because I accept it and I take it. So um, I got to ask you this too, you know, um, and, and and I'm very interested in this because I'm a huge Herzog fan. I have been for years, which means I'm a big fan of a lot of the actors in his movies and a kind of a collector of some of these um, nuances in in how performers of his uh, have interpreted their characters. And one thing I've noticed, um, so there's a movie, Agira, uh, Wrath of God, which is one of his most famous pictures as well. And in it, Klaus Kinski played a conquistador. And Klaus Kinski had this um, idea, although it's disputable, I guess, whose idea it really was, for his character to walk with... Um, with a sort of one arm dragging down lower than the other and uh, his chest kind of puffed out. So he always had this bizarre posture throughout the whole film where he would kind of lean to the side. Um, and there's, it seems so silly almost, almost pretentious in a way. And yet it added so much to that character. 
And I read about, um, you know, Nicolas Cage and Herzog collaborating about uh, Terrence's character that his shoulders should be somewhat askance and his his, uh, neck should be protruding. And it's hard not to kind of picture a lizard-like creature in the way that that's described, right? And his eyes are always supposed to be looking off kind of to the side. Uh, I I love that. I I love that attention to detail that just really kind of... um, uh, tells you more about that character than any dialogue ever could. And I also have to say the hair, Nicholas Cage as an actor, some of the most bizarre hair choices, right? <laughs> and, and, and always Absolutely. for the better because, because they like, I don't know what his hair looks like in real life anymore. He's one of those actors. I was thinking about this with a few others, like Jeremy Piven, uh, a few others, these guys that they were definitely balding at one point. Like you look at their earlier careers, like they were losing their hair. They should by all definitions be bald by now. And they're not. So it's either yeah. a weave or, or plugs or they're doing something. And the characters, uh, especially in Cage's movies, it, so many different hairstyles all the time. And I feel like it's definitely not an accident. It, it's definitely meant to tell you something about this character. How he's, I was wondering what you thought about that. It looks like this character, Terrence, is the, the hair just kind of like sits at the crown of his head, right? Just like, I don't know how else to put, just sits there like a bird, like an overturned bird's nest. <laughs> you know, it's, I guess the, I guess the, the cage hair conundrum is always one that is ongoing because um, you know sometimes uh, the hair is fine, sometimes Cage's hair on his characters is just notably um, absurd. Um, I think on this one, my um, my note on the hair. Let me just find it. I said his hair is like Lego forced on a head at a forty five degree angle. Um, <laughs> yes, I love it. I think, like you said, though, I think um, with the um, uh, the physical affliction of how they were looking to play it, but like sort of the, the neck protrude and the shoulder out, it sort of adds to it as well because um, there's there's a calculated attention to detail, which I think is very easy to overlook with a lot of things that Cage does um, because he gets an understanding for a character and he gets a feel for it, and he'll make changes and suggestions. Uh, when they're sort of filming as well, but with but with this, I guess um, cause I I it was kind of gradual, so I didn't notice it straight away. But you sort of get that um, that change in his physicality, sort of depending on how uh, sober he is, or how under the influence he is, or how much in pain that he is. Because there's one point, maybe halfway, three quarters of the way through the film, when. Um, I, I just suddenly noticed like that his voice had changed. I noticed um, that too. I, I, yeah. I, was, I was going to ask you about this because yeah. I, I, the voice just suddenly changed, and I was just like, "Was was his voice always like this? Was it, is this is this intentional? Is this a mistake? Have I missed something?" But in his most desperate moments, when he's more hunched over, he's like, ooh, da, 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 he sort of sounds more like uh, like uh, stuttering and. and barely coherent and holding himself together. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it comes into what you're saying, like he's I um, actually, losing I control. I, I, perhaps so. Although I do think in some, when you're playing these kind of characters who live a very, very chaotic life, um, there's also chances for incongruity and mistakes within the storytelling if you're not paying very close attention as a director, editor, actor, script supervisor, etc. I actually wouldn't be surprised if that was just 
kind of a mistake, you know, that uh, Kate, because I think there are moments in the film in which he's talking and you can tell he's meant to be on certain drugs. Like there's moments where he talks very slow. He, he's on heroin. There's moments where he's like really upbeat and happy. He's all coked up. But then there's this thing that you mentioned where it's like the, the, the accent changes, the voice changes. Like he's a different character all of a sudden that mm -hmm. there's something about it in the, in this movie specifically that just didn't ring true to me within the confines of the film I, in fact i thought that maybe it was just a slip up yeah um like it's a not I, I suppose between either of us not that we're saying that the film should be force feeding us information and answers and right. some things you have to put together for yourself but it but it it, it did feel like that sudden always oh, he's speaking like a normal person uh, now he's this is a completely different voice and character that I'm seeing here. Again, stuff gets changed, you know, between a film being greenlit to it being the film we get at the right. cinema or on demand. Obviously, edits are made, things get changed, things get cut and added in. Maybe there was a scene cut out that showed more of a transition um, into that character that we see yeah. there. Um, you, you can't always know. Um, but then, you know, I, I was in my head still trying to figure out well alligators and then iguanas um and then suddenly the new voice but um i think just going back to that sort of iguana scene there what i <laughs> i think the part i enjoyed the most um obviously he's playing like that, that music at the same time yeah. um as it's just focused on the iguanas you sort of see cage in the back of shot like it's not focused on him but you see him just keep he keeps looking at the iguanas and smiling at them it's like Oh, I'm kind of into this now. I'm quite happy that the iguanas are here. They're quite cute, actually. Um, like he's just accepted that this is yeah. now this is now a part of his life. And no one else seemed all that worried about him. <laughs> I mean, no, they Val just kind of let wasn't. it go. No, Val Kilmer was just like, like I, I know that you're an, you're an oddball, but whatever, whatever. Yeah, he's got his um, own problems. Like very clearly, like he was <laughs> he, like that was not the movie where they were going to pull that guy aside. And say, look, man, I, I, I think you need to get some help. No, <laughs> no one was going to do that, were they? No, this this was not the film for anyone to ask to ask for help. Um, no. Ellie, Which I, uh, I'm sure wasn't intentional, but that's what's so beautiful about it in a sense too, right? Like this guy was very, if you just want to look at it from a serious point of view, this guy's like seriously destructive behavior. I mean, and very obvious to everybody because they do tie it in a little bit with his dad who's going to AA meetings, you know? Like that was a bit of a storyline for a little bit in the movie. Yeah. So there's these yeah. suggestions of like substance abuse is like this huge theme in the movie. Yeah, obviously he's his dad's um, in and out of AA. His stepmother is an alcoholic, um, but neither his dad or stepmother seem to acknowledge that they might be a problem to each other and they're right. this weird unit. Um Obviously, his his partner, played by Eva Mendez, Frankie, is um, a, a prostitute, and then he's sort of uh, in and out of her life. They're doing drugs together. He's being supplied drugs by a very small role for Michael Shannon as Munt, who works yeah, in the um, yeah. the uh, evidence locker. Um, I think this this film. I, I say that now. Um, reuniting Michael Shannon and Cage. They're both together in World Trade Center in two thousand and six. Forgot about that. Um, yeah. But um, I think obviously touched on Eva Mendes. I, I thought she was great in this film Fantastic. as well. I think she, yeah. I think she did a great job. She seemed very. Um, I think some of the, some of the the concern that it's can be easy to have with the Cage role, especially when you get someone starring opposite him, 
is depending on the script, depending on the director, sometimes um, are they going to make too much of a point out of Cage? Cage, through no fault of his own, I think just because of the way he acts, is a very physical actor. Um, he can chew up a scene, for better or worse. But right. I think Eva Mendes was, um, was, was, was so remarkable in it and so watchable as well. Um, and it was um, a, a good chemistry. And that being said, pairing them again uh, together again after Ghost Rider as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so a good, uh, a good pairing, a good on-screen chemistry uh, with Eva Mendes. Certainly. I thought. Uh, any fam- any favorite scenes that really stick out to you? Um, for me, and I think this again completely showing the bias here. Going back to Cage, uh, <laughs> two towards the end of the film. Now at this point where he's been. Um, Actually, no, three, because I've just started thinking of the other one, but it, it all sort of links from the, this this one that popped back into my head. Obviously, they're trying to get a lead on Big Fate, played by um, Exhibit, um, the rapper. You may also know him as the uh, former host of Pimp My Ride. Um, oh, what a show that was. <laughs> um, uh, the 2000s for shows. What a great time. Oh, yeah. Um, it was a good decade for ride pimping, for sure. Oh, I mean, I had, I had no ride to pimp, only a BMX at that time. <laughs> Which, which now that's another side side tangent. Uh, when I was in high school, we had like a school trip to Germany, and in that the room I was sharing with some friends, we had a TV on there. So it was German TV. It's like, oh, okay, you know, we'll put it on. There was, and I swear I'm not making this up uh, because I now I was the only one who saw it, and I'm not crazy. I know what I saw. I know what I saw. I'm not on Vicodin, but there was a German version of Pimp My Ride where they pimped people's BMXs. And I swear to God, this guy got a um, like a fuzzball table, a table football table on his handlebars. And I swear that's real. I didn't make it up. I've never been able to find evidence of it since. So I sound mad. Um, but I know what I saw. Um, now, that, <laughs> that aside, um, when they're at the, um, the care home and they're speaking to... Um, Binny, because they're trying to find her grandson, Daryl, great name, mm-hmm. um, who was uh, like an auditory witness at the shooting. Um, and then he's there for the second time and he's grabbed like Antoinette's like oxygen tubes. And he's like, you yeah. fucks, you fucks. I hate you. I hate you both. I should kill you right now. You're the problem with this country. Yeah. He, <laughs> he's just, <laughs> just lost it on these like uh, poor, poor women. Yeah. Um, yes. One yeah. poor elderly white woman. One poor elderly black woman. Uh, one rich. Yeah. One poor. I'll leave it up to imagination as to which was which. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're they're just minding their own business, and he's waving a giant fucking gun uh, revolver in their face like Dirty Harry. Um, the electric razor too on the face, like that. Something about that kills me. I love that. Oh yeah, because he was behind the door, and he just appears, yeah. and he's shaving. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, I'll be working on about uh, an hour and a half of sleep over three days. And he's like, maybe me being nice is getting in the way of my skills. And then he just terrorizes these old women. Yeah. Um, that was that was a great bit. Uh, I'm now thinking of that guy, uh, Justin, who it's strongly implied he abused Frankie. Yes, um, yes. Also a good actor. Obviously, um great actor as well. He bursts in well, I should say Cage bursts in because he realizes that Frankie um might be in trouble. Um uh Shea Wiggum, Justin, the great Shea Wiggum. Um 
and he he started threatening he's like like we don't hit women down suddenly you're gonna wish you're a bomber without a dick and then justin he just slowly backs out of the yeah. room he's going whoa 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 <laughs> whoa whoa then he goes out comes back in whoa <laughs> i thought that was it, that and it just was stares great. down the the little kid right he goes oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's like he's obviously that sort of that small timer who's got powerful connections. And they said his yeah. uncle was a U.S. congressman, something um, like that. Yeah, and because of that, that's why um, McDonough gets demoted to evidence. The other two were sort of skipping ahead. Where after he's been um, because of the terrorizing the old ladies and because of the U.S. congressman connection, he's in evidence now, so he can still get access to drugs. Right. But now he's working with the exhibit's character, Big Fate. Um, to pay off a Bucky, um, or no, the gangster, I should say, who's connected with Justin that he owes for like 50000 Um And he's saying, like, I will give you information where the police are going to hit, but for every delivery, you give me like fifteen grand. Um, so there's the one where they're driving together. It's him. Is it? Is it G and Midget? Is that? Is that the? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the two the other uh, guy. accomplices, yeah. The two accomplices, his two goons. Um and then he's like, like, where's my money? And Exhibit's like, right, we'll get it. You know, it's fine. You know, he's like, I want to cut the uncut dope. And he's like, if you screw me, I'll kill you to the break of dawn, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and that's some of the greatest acting I've ever seen. Like, you know, it wasn't in the script. Yeah. Like, and it must have felt so silly doing it, but he just gave it his all. Oh, it's like, I'm going to kill you to the break of dawn. To the broken arm, baby. Which I think now I'm going to incorporate into my vernacular. <laughs> I don't know how, um, but like, like you, you know, he just went for it. You just 